Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. Very pleased to have Emmanuel Navon, political scientist, author, and foreign policy expert, join us to discuss his new book, The Star and the Scepter, A Diplomatic History of Israel. Dr. Navon will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Dr. Emmanuel Navon. Thank you very much, uh, Stacy, and thank you uh, to the Middle East uh, Forum for this uh, invitation. Uh, as Stacy stated, for the launching of my uh, new book, uh, The Star and uh, the Scepter, uh, a diplomatic history uh, of Israel that was just uh, published by the uh, Jewish Publication Society and the University Press of uh, Nebraska. It is a, as its subtitle, subtitle says, it's a diplomatic history of Israel, but not only uh, of the state of Israel, but of the people of Israel. And the reason why I decided to write this book is that I have been teaching a class uh, on Israel's foreign policy for many years at Tel Aviv University and at the uh, Interdisciplinary Center Erzaliya. And I realized after teaching this class for so many years that there's no book, there was no book until now at least, uh, no comprehensive book on Israel's foreign policy, uh, treating Israel's foreign policy under all its aspects with a wide historical perspective. And so I decided to undertake this, uh, this project, knowing of course that uh, in academia, uh, in North America and Europe, the approach to Israel is of course uh, extremely critical very often, and I wanted to provide a history of Israel uh, with a, uh, a proud Zionist narrative. Uh, and so when I started writing the book, I, uh, I of course started, started with Israel's independence in 1948, but then I said to myself, uh, obviously the history of the Jewish people did not start in 1948, uh, and uh, I should provide a wide historical perspective. And that's why I ended up writing a diplomatic history that spans 3000 years. Uh, and uh, that is of course very ambitious, but I think that this project was as ambitious as it was necessary. And as I looked into ancient history, and I went through the uh, Hebrew Bible uh, to uh, look into the question of uh, Israel and the nations in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and I have a chapter in the book that deals with this issue that is called Israel and the nations in the Hebrew Bible, I bumped into a verse that inspired the uh, title of the book, Why the Star and the Scepter? Because uh, there is in the book of Numbers when the uh, prophet Bilam is literally hired by uh, King Balak to uh, curse the people of Israel. Uh, he ends up uh, blessing them and uh, making statements that are very telling. One of them is, quote, a star shall come out of uh, Jacob and a scepter from Israel. My understanding of this verse is that the star is the symbol of spirituality, and it is related to Jacob. The scepter is the symbol of political power. And Israel, and Jacob received his name Israel, or Israel in Hebrew, only after proving his willingness and his ability to fight for uh, his spiritual uh, legacy in the real world. And that, was, that is what the word Israel means. And yet, 
I noticed uh, after studying 3,000 years of uh, diplomatic history that the Jewish people always had this kind of a tension between uh, only favoring spirituality and abandoning political power or on the other extreme, only going for political power at the expense of uh, spirituality and faithfulness uh, to our historical heritage. And my central thesis in that book is that historically the Jews have succeeded in their relation with other nations by combining, by finding a delicate equilibrium or balance uh, between their historical and spiritual heritage on the one hand and political power uh, on the other hand. As I said, it's something that I identify uh, throughout 3000 years uh, of Jewish uh, history. It is something that we find also among sages and commentators uh, in Jewish sources. Uh, if I mention, for example, the Hebrew Bible, so when, uh, when Jacob, who is now, now renamed Israel, uh, meets uh, his brother Esav in Hebrew or Esau in English, uh, he calls him my Lord and calls himself, calls himself thy servant. And the commentators are very divided on this attitude of, on this submissive attitude of Jacob vis-a-vis Ezo. Uh, and some of them, uh, such as the Nachmanides, says that this was unacceptable, that Jacob debased himself. Others uh, say, on the other hand, that uh, if the Jews had been more realistic and submissive vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, their kingdom and or their province, uh, would not have been destroyed, and that was the position of Rabbi Yehuda uh, Anasi. And, and in fact, in uh, ancient times and antiquity, the Jewish rebellion against the uh, uh, against the Greeks uh, was successful, and the Jews reestablished the kingdom under the Asmonean monarchy. Uh, but on the other hand, the rebellion of Bar Kokhba against the Roman Empire was disastrous because it completely ignored the actual uh, balance uh, of powers. And I also claim that there was a Jewish diplomacy uh, during uh, the exile, during the diaspora. I give a few uh, examples, such as the one of Menashe ben Israel, a Jewish scholar, a Portuguese and Dutch Jewish scholar, who literally negotiated uh, with uh, Cromwell to reopen the gates of England and enable the Jews to come back uh, to England. Ababanel was himself altogether a scholar and a diplomat. Also closer to us in the 19th century, the Damascus affair in 1840, when the Jews of Damascus were the victim of a blood libel and were accused of murdering Christians and Christian children. Uh, there was uh, a whole diplomacy of uh, powerful Jews in Europe, uh, such as the Rothschilds uh, throughout Europe, but also the French uh, politician Adolphe Crémieux, uh, and also Sir Moses Montefiore, who acted as diplomats vis-a-vis -vis the Sultan to protect the interest of the Jews of uh, Damascus. And of course, uh, with the establishment in 1897 of the Zionist uh, Congress by Theodor Herzl, immediately Herzl and other uh, Zionist leaders such as uh, Chaim Weizmann became statesmen and diplomats the moment this political movement was established. And very soon the Zionist movement was faced with this age old tension, which I described between faithfulness to the past and adaptability to reality and willingness to use force in the real world. 
I think the first test of uh, realism uh, versus ideology in Zionist foreign policy was with the uh, proposal uh, of the British government in 1903 to establish a Jewish state in Uganda uh, to forget for the time being the line of Israel, which was ruled by the Ottomans and not by the British. When this proposal was brought to the Zionist Congress in 1903, it was very hotly debated. And it was, as I said, an early taste, a test and taste, I guess, also of realpolitik versus principles and ideology in foreign policy. I think the second historical test came with the, uh, uh, the, the conflict between Jews and Arabs in the British mandate and the proposal of the uh, British government uh, in 1937 to partition the mandate between a, an Arab state and a teeny, teeny Jewish state. Here again, uh, the debate was between uh, cold political realism, obtaining uh, some kind of sovereignty here and, and now when it was necessary, four years after the, uh, um, after the Nazis conquered power in Germany, and when the British restricted Jewish uh, immigration to the mandate, but on the other hand, a very small state that was not, that did not include Jerusalem, that only included a tiny part of the land of Israel. Again, a very tough debate at the end. This time, uh, a majority of the political leadership of the Yishuv, of the Zionist leadership, and Ben-Gurion accepted the plan with many uh, reservations. Uh, and I think that um, if you look at Israel's declaration of independence also, uh, it includes a very, uh, very clear, a very clear commitment to Jewish, uh, to Jewish history, uh, to the Jewish past, to the ingathering of, of the exiles. Uh, on the other hand, on the question of uh, partition and of the borders of the Jewish state in 1947, uh, here again, uh, when Ben Gurion accepted, uh, decided to accept the UN partition plan, even though this plan uh, was uh, far from being perfect. Uh, it was not as bad as the one that had been proposed by uh, the British government by the Peel Commission in 1937, and yet it did not include Jerusalem. It was a very small state with uh, unworkable uh, borders. And, uh, but here again, it was uh, two years after the end of World War II when uh, uh, a third of the Jewish people and uh, six million Jews had been exterminated uh, by the Nazis in Germany. And uh, Ben-Gurion, of course, was criticized for accepting uh, that plan. And when he was reminded uh, of the Biltmore proposal, what was the Biltmore proposal? It was a decision that had been uh, taken, a resolution taken by the, uh, by the Zionist Congress in, uh, in Biltmore in 1941 uh, in, in the United States, which called upon the establishment of, quote, a Jewish Commonwealth on all of the uh, British mandate, meaning without partition. But after the Holocaust and after the weakness of the Jewish people and the Zionist movement in the new international system, Ben-Gurion reached the conclusion that accepting partition uh, was the only way to reach uh, Jewish statehood. And when he was reminded of the Biltmore uh, resolution, his reply typically was, quote, Biltmore, Schmiltmore, we need a state now. And, and I think that this was uh, probably uh, the secret of Israel's uh, uh, success in 1948, as I said, this, uh, this uh, uh, faithfulness to our history on the one hand and a willingness uh, to adapt it to reality, to implement it in the real world and to be ready uh, to fight for it. For it. Uh, with the two minutes uh, or three minutes left, 
I also want to uh, touch upon how Israel's international status has improved dramatically uh, in recent years and how Israel's international status has never been uh, so good. And I think the reason for that is that we do have in a way, uh, this is in a way the uh, long-term implementation of the, uh, of the vision that had been uh, set out by Vladimir Jabotinsky, Josef Jabotinsky in his famous article in 1923 of the Iron War saying that the Zionist movement uh, had to base its uh, strategy and its foreign policy uh, based on, uh, on deterrence and, uh, and a firm will to fight for it. And when Israel is strong enough, then the Arab world will accept it for what it is. It will be willing to make peace with Israel uh, when Israel is uh, a strong country and the Arabs realize that it cannot be removed or destroyed. And I think we're witnessing that today with the normalization uh, between Israel uh, and the Arab world, Israel having become not only a military power, but also a technological power, and in recent years, also an energy uh, exporter. And what we witness today is the fact that Israel being the strongest power of the Middle East is becoming a de facto ally of the Sunni states who want to protect themselves from Iranian imperialism and nuclear uh, ambitions, but also the fact that we're approaching the post-oil era when uh, oil countries such as Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states that uh, whose, revenue, whose revenues and economy completely depended and continue to depend on all revenues. Uh, today, the decline of oil prices is inevitable. It is going to continue. Uh, countries such as Saudi Arabia need a, an average oil uh, price of oil for the barrel to be at $70. It is now at $30 and therefore they understand that their economic model is not sustainable and that the future depends on technology. And technology in the Middle East, of course, means uh, Israel. And so I am very optimistic uh, for the future uh, of Israel, but I would recommend to keep in mind what I think is the ultimate lesson of 3000 years of diplomatic history, which is to always remember to keep a delicate balance between our faithfulness to the past and to, uh, uh, and to uh, uh, the role of the Jewish people in the world uh, and between political power to keep this balance between faith and power or between uh, the star and the scepter. So I thank you for your attention. I thank you for joining this uh, uh, Middle East Forum uh, webinar. Uh, I stuck exactly to 15 minutes. See, that's what it is when you're a professor, you know how to measure your time. And we'll leave it now to the questions and answers. All right, thank you so much. It was a great rundown. Um, we have quite a few questions coming in. So the first one is, um, can you comment a little more on what lessons Israel can learn from its past on the normalization process upcoming, especially the purported Netanyahu-Saudi meeting? So that's a very good question. And I think that uh, one of the things that I do in my book is to always provide a historical perspective. And uh, one chapter in the book talks about Israel's uh, uh, strategy of the periphery in the 1960s when Israel at the time was isolated uh, diplomatically in the late 50s, early 60s, it was starting to lose its uh, military alliance with France and it didn't have yet an alliance with the United States. 
the foreign policy of the Eisenhower administration uh, was clearly pro-Arab, and therefore Ben-Gurion initiated the strategy of uh, building alliances in the wider Middle East with non-Arab countries that were fearful of uh, Soviet communism and of Arab nationalism. And those allies at the time were mostly Iran, uh, Turkey, but also Ethiopia and minorities throughout the Middle East, such as the Kurds, the Christians in Lebanon, and also in Southern Sudan. This policy was based on the principle of the enemy of my enemies, my friend. And indeed we had a strategic, we even have the Mossad even established a common intelligence agency with Iran and with Turkey. Iran starting from 1957 was our, our main provider and supplier of oil. Uh, we had at the time an alliance between uh, these countries against the Arab world. And today we have the very opposite. I think this, the strategy that this periphery is still relevant, except that if you look at it today, it is a periphery with the Arab states against Iran and against Turkey, which is interesting because what happened in those former allies is that you had major regime changes. Of course, Iran became an Islamic Republic in 1979. And after 2002 was the election of Erdogan as prime minister of Turkey and his radicalization in recent years, Turkey has embraced a pan-Islamic foreign policy, which is becoming increasingly hostile to Israel. And therefore, precisely because of this dual threat of Turkey and of Iran, the Arab states, the Sunni states are getting closer to Israel, are normalizing their relations uh, with Israel in the open. And so it's another example of how historical perspectives help us understand current events. As I said, in the, in the case of our normalization uh, with the Arab states, it is, in my opinion, a kind of reversal of the periphery strategy where it is still relevant, just it's been turned upside down. Thank you. And going back to the historical references, our viewer would like to know, wasn't the diplomacy of Ezra with Cyrus the most significant in Jewish history? Is it saved Israel from a disappearance from history? Again, I, I, I'm not sure I understood the question. Okay. Uh, was, wasn't the diplomacy of Ezra with Cyrus the most significant in Jewish history? Oh yeah, you mean in the, in the edict of Cyrus to let the Jews rebuild the temple. So it's interesting because when I, uh, for the purpose of my book, uh, I actually went through the whole uh, uh, Hebrew Bible, including of course the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, when you read carefully the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what do you see there? You see the, the strongest empire in the world uh, whose uh, king comes with a declaration that the Jews are entitled to rebuild uh, their home and the city and the temple. In the meantime, of course, since they've been in exile for many years, there are new inhabitants in the land and those new inhabitants oppose the return of the Jews. And what do they do? This is described very precisely in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, they, uh, first of all, they use uh, uh, terrorism against the Jews and they use propaganda. They go to the king and saying the Jews, what they're doing, they're building illegally. And uh, not only are they building illegally, but since they rebelled against the empire in the past, they're not reliable, they're dangerous, and therefore you should revoke this edict of Cyrus. And you have this kind of diplomatic 
uh, war between the Jews and their uh, and their uh, opponents or the enemies in the land, uh, where you know they say to the king, "But you came up with this declaration," and he said, "Well, find it for me." And they find it and say, "Look, uh, we're not buying illegally." And say, "Okay, you're right." And and when you look, when you read all this, it is so remindful of the same very same diplomatic struggle under the British mandate. It, it reads like the Balfour Declaration with the British Empire at the time, the strongest empire in the world, just like the Persian Empire at the time, uh, publishing this declaration and then backtracking under the pressure of locals, of international pressure, saying we didn't really mean it. Uh, and when the British Empire in the 1930s completely walked away from the Balfour Declaration and basically betrayed the Zionist movement, so I think here again, it's a good example of looking at things with a historical perspective. Uh, again, if you, if you read carefully the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it really reads like uh, Britain and the Zionist movement in the 20s and in the 30s. Thank you so much. Do you think that Israel will enjoy security and normal relations with the Arabs without reaching an agreement with the Palestinians? Well, it's been proven so far that the answer is yes. Uh, that we've uh, signed agreements with Egypt, with Jordan, with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, and hopefully soon now with uh, Sudan and probably with Saudi Arabia. And the reason for that is that obviously uh, the Arab world uh, does not care uh, about the Palestinians. I mean, when uh, Sadat came to Jerusalem in 1977 and he spoke at the Knesset, he said, uh, just in case you had doubts, I did not come here to sign a separate peace and I will not forget the Palestinians. But at the end of the day, signing a separate peace is exactly what he did. Uh, what he wanted was to get back the Sinai Peninsula and this he did get back. He paid lip service to the Palestinians, but he couldn't care less. Same thing with Jordan. Uh, Jordan signed a peace agreement with Israel in 994, true after the Oslo agreements, but don't forget that the Hashemite family is the historical enemy uh, of the PLO. And today, today basically, the, uh, the Sunni states uh, uh, of, uh, of the Gulf, but also Saudi Arabia, and they say it, by the way, if you look at the media, if you look at the translation of memory, uh, but also the Sudanese, they say openly, they say, we no, longer to want, we no longer want to be the hostages of the Palestinians. And basically the Arab world today no longer wants to be hostage of the Palestinian myth that it created as a tool against Israel uh, after the Six Day War and after the Yom Kippur War. Uh, today, it's a different world. After the Yom Kippur War, Saudi Arabia was leading the economic struggle against Israel via the oil boycott. Today, it's a different world. There's no longer, the oil is no longer a geopolitical weapon. On the contrary, as I explained before, Saudi Arabia today needs technology to get itself out of the economic trap of being a rentier economy. They need technology in order to have growth and not only depend on oil. So they no longer want to wait for Mahmoud Abbas to sign an agreement with Israel, which he refuses to sign, which he has refused to sign uh, since he was first elected in 2004, uh, when he was proposed this very generous deal by Ehud Olmert in 2008, but also the Kerry plan in 2014. So as I said, those countries today are saying openly that they want to benefit from the cooperation with Israel in terms of security and intelligence to face Iran, in, but also 
for Israel's technology, for the post-oil uh, economy. And since they know, as everybody does, that Mahmoud Abbas is never going to sign an agreement with Israel, why uh, wait longer? Understood. And can you identify one or two governing principles that guide Israel's foreign policy throughout its existence in 1948? Since 1948? I think in, in 1948, uh, very clearly, uh, we had, uh, uh, on the one hand, as I said, the dilemma surrounding, uh, surrounding the partition plan, which eventually was accepted. But it was accepted also because, don't forget that Ben-Gurion uh, did something very clever. Uh, he, uh, what he did is that if you look at Israel's Declaration of Independence, uh, there's something that is not mentioned there. And that something is borders. Borders are not mentioned and that was intentional. Uh, the question of borders was actually removed from the final version uh, of the Declaration of Independence. And the reason for that is the following. Uh, the uh, partition plan uh, approved by the General Assembly on the 29th of November 1947 was only a recommendation. It was not a binding resolution. By the way, the idea that the UN created Israel is false. It is a myth. Uh, votes by the General Assembly are recommendations. They're not binding in international law. So the General Assembly recommended to divide the British mandate between a Jewish state and an Arab state. This proposal, this recommendation became moot the moment it was rejected by the Arab League. So if Israel had declared its independence in 1948 within the non-binding borders suggested by the General Assembly, then it would have declared itself as an occupier in any territory that it would have conquered in its war of independence, which it did. If you look at the difference between the 1947 partition borders and the 1949 armistice lines, Israel's territory was bigger than what it was supposed to be according to the UN proposal. So if Ben-Gurion had declared Israel's independence only within the non-binding uh, borders proposed by the General Assembly, any Israeli presence beyond those lines would have been uh, illegal by Israel's own admission. And that's why they were removed. On the other hand, uh, Ben-Gurion could also have declared Israel's independence in the entire British mandate, which uh, had a standing in, in international law because according to the principle of usi positetis, you can inherit a former sovereign, but this would have been uh, consistent of ignoring completely the partition plan, which even though it was not binding, was mentioned in Israel's declaration of independence. Ben-Gurion knew that at the end of the day, the borders of Israel would be determined by war with the Arab world, which wasn't the case. And as you see, he also uh, this in advance, and that's why he was extremely cautious and careful in the wording of the Declaration uh, of Independence. Thank you. So here in the States with our current election, uh, we're pretty concerned about a possible Biden-Harris administration and how that will affect uh, normalization process between Israel and the Arab neighbors. Uh, you did bring up a great point about oil prices dropping and the technological advances in Israel. Can you comment on how that would factor in? I think the future of this uh, normalization will very much depend on the outcome of the contacts and negotiations with the new administration in the United States and Iran uh, on the nuclear deal. 
president-elect Biden has uh, made no secret of his intention to uh, re-enter the JCPOA, or at least to renegotiate the JCPOA. And I think that uh, the outcome of those negotiations will be very carefully watched by Israel and by the Sunni states, because depending on which attitude, on which policy Biden adopts, that will very much determine the future of this normalization, which by the way, um, the attitude and the policy of the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis Iran will also be influenced by the policy of the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis China, because China and Russia are co-signatories of the JCPOA. And depending on how uh, confrontational Biden will decide to be vis-a-vis -vis China, this will also determine China's cooperation or lack thereof regarding the renegotiation of the JCPOA. So as you see, all these issues are intertwined and related. Uh, I think it's too early to know, of course, what will be the attitude of Biden vis-a-vis -vis Iran. I think that uh, uh, on a note of cautious optimism, my guess is that Biden realizes that uh, this is no longer uh, 2015. The Middle East has changed a lot since then. I do not think that he will try to make Iran a partner to fight a common enemy. Uh, I think he will be more realistic and cautious than President Obama on dealing with Iran. I hope so, at least. Uh, but again, uh, as I said, this uh, the outcome of those negotiations and contacts with the Biden administration in Iran will very much determine uh, the uh, future of the normalization of witness between Israel and the Sunni states. Thank you so much. And in our last minute here, would you like to tell our viewers where they can find a copy of your book? So thank you very much again. Uh, my book uh, is uh, available uh, on Amazon, of course, uh, uh, amazon.com. Uh, it's available there, The Star and the Scepter, A Diplomatic uh, History uh, of Israel. And uh, if any of you wants to write a, a review or, uh, uh, or host a podcast like today, you're welcome to tell me and I'll send you a complimentary uh, copy. So uh, I look forward to hearing your feedback uh, on the book and have more conversation again with the Middle East Forum. And I thank you again for hosting me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking thank the time you. to speak with us. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our weekly update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day. Thank you again.